1: I believe that in the last 25 years, food has become a commodity. The food system has become more and more global. So food is produced all across the world. The value of the food is not related to the way of production, but to different factors that are external to the food production.
0: Hello and welcome to The Star Ingredient, a Euronews original podcast series that will expose your palate to a forgotten world of flavours and hopefully challenge some ideas you have about the food on your plate. I'm your host, Akunbo Sulaco, your companion on this culinary journey where we're meeting with communities, chefs and thought leaders in the world of food on a mission to revive traditional ingredients, all while cooking up some delicious new recipes. In today's episode, we're switching gears to dig a little deeper into some of the broader challenges facing our global food system.
1: Food is traded globally, and the value is decided in financial stock exchange.
0: That voice you're hearing belongs to award-winning filmmaker and journalist Stefano Liberty. Stefano has devoted much of his career to environmental issues, food supply chains and the impact of food commodification on global food security. This last topic is the one we're focusing on today, the process by which food is turned into a commodity like gold or oil and traded across global markets for profit. Throughout this podcast, we've touched on how the Russia-Ukraine war has led to grain supply shocks heavily impacting African and Middle Eastern countries relying on food imports. These two countries, Russia and Ukraine, are often labelled the world's breadbasket. But the war disrupting Ukraine's ability to export grains like wheat and corn doesn't tell the whole story.
1: Russia and Ukraine have become, in the last 25 years, 30 years maybe, uh, big exporters of this commodity, of this grain. So when the, the war started, the idea was that in the following months, there would be a shortage. So you, when, you buy, when you buy grain, you don't buy grain on the spot, but you buy grain on a future contract. So you buy grain uh, in a stock exchange at the price that it's supposed to be in the next few months, in the next six months, for example. So... People were buying future contracts because they were supposing that uh, in the next few months there would be shortage and so the price would be higher. But the real market relates to these futures. So people in the the stock exchange buy future prices, but real price uh, increased immediately. So there was this paradoxical effect that there was a lot of grain, but prices were going up. We're going up very, very, very fast.
0: This idea, trading food as commodities on future contracts, isn't exactly a new concept. In fact, its roots go all the way back to ancient civilizations, where farmers and traders would agree deals to trade crops before they were even harvested. In the 19th century, futures contracts for agricultural products were standardized in the U.S., Back then, it was a way for farmers to secure prices and plan ahead while ensuring traders had a consistent supply of crops. But towards the end of the next century, things began to
1: change. They have been deregulated since the beginning of the 90s in the 20th century.
0: The US passed a number of measures to deregulate these futures markets which allowed more traders to participate in the market using new financial instruments not subject to regulatory oversight. Traders were allowed to hold a larger position in the market and influence prices. And finally, the repeal of Glass-Steagall allowed banks to engage in a wider range of financial activities, including agriculture, commodity trading. All of this led to an influx of investors into food markets who had little to do with agriculture.
1: Traditionally, you have some speculators that are part of the market. But in the last few years, the speculators are, have become the mm, the majority, this market. So they are betting, they are using it not as a, as a way of organising the market, but actually as a way of making profits.
0: When a basic necessity like food becomes subject to market speculation, it's the countries that have abandoned food sovereignty that can end up counting the
1: cost. When the food system becomes globalised, then you have some countries that decide to rely on Imports and not on production. That is what happened, for example, in North Africa. If you take the example of Egypt, Egypt was at the, at the Roman time the breadbasket of Rome. The Romans imported from Egypt a, a huge amount of wheat, for example, for, for their for their population and for their soldiers. Now Egypt is the net importer. They not they not they're not producing wheat anymore or a, a small amount. Because they they prefer to buy waste on the global market because it is normally cheap, it's cheaper.
0: But when there is a war or a climate issue, the prices can skyrocket.
1: And those people can't buy the food anymore. Can't buy the waste anymore. And you have riots for food. So the the food becomes a commodity, and all the food supply chain becomes becomes very long, and it is not controlled. By the state anymore.
0: Stefano thinks there are two ways to change the situation.
1: The first one is to regulate the food exchange on the global stock exchange markets. Starting regulating again and prevent financial actors and commercial banks from uh, betting on food would be a first step. The second one is to build food production systems in more in low income countries in order to uh, help them regain their food sovereignty the global global institutions should provide them with ways of producing in a better way but uh, but um, especially of to distribute the food they produce on the local market uh, Stefano
0: believes the loss of food sovereignty and globalisation isn't just hurting food security in low-income countries in Africa and the Middle East. In some cases, it's decimated thriving local industries and produced extremely complex food supply chains that somewhat illogically crisscross the globe. It's a story that's encapsulated in the long and winding tale of the humble Ghanaian tomato.
1: A very concrete example, I made a, a, a report some years ago on tomato paste in Ghana. The Ghanaian use a lot of, a big amount of tomato paste in their national plates, and they and they used to produce their tomato paste in the 60s and the 70s, because they produced tomato, and there was a local supply chain that worked very well. So there were tomato producers, some... Mm, tomato transformers, and the, the, the tomato paste was sold on the local market were produced locally. But this changed in the mid-90s. Then, the country was flooded by, for, by um, tomato paste coming from Italy, because uh, Italy started to export tomato paste into Ghana, benefiting from subsidies that the European Union was giving to the, Euro- to the European producers and also to the European exporters. So this was a paradoxical situation that made that the tomato paste coming from Italy, going into Ghana, was cheaper than the tomato paste produced in Ghana.
0: In the beginning, these Italian tomato paste producers were using Italian raw materials, tomatoes, for the paste being exported into Ghana, until they realized that they could get tomatoes for much, much cheaper, even if these tomatoes were coming from the other side of the world.
1: Then they find out it was even cheaper to rely on raw materials coming from China. So what is actually happening is that tomatoes are produced in China, in a very specific region of China, which is the Xinjiang, so in the far west China. Then they are exported to Italy, where they are turned into tomato paste and re-exported to Ghana. This is a a, a very good example of how food has become a commodity, because this tomato paste that has gone across three continents and three oceans is cheaper than the one produced locally. There's a reason for this. The tomato production in China is subsidized. The process of uh, uh, producing tomato paste in Italy is subsidized by the European Union. So the double subsidising of this tomato paste makes that the tomato paste coming from outside is cheaper than the one produced locally. Also because, as I said before, uh, the, the, the local market, the Ghanaian market, is not protecting itself. So it's allowing all this product to, to, to enter without paying any tariff.
0: This new globalised reality had a big impact on tomato farmers in Ghana.
1: I went to this region in the northeast Ghana, the Upper East region, that was once a place where everyone, almost everyone, was producing tomato, and they're not producing tomato anymore. So the question is, what happened to all these farmers that were having um, this way of living and that they are not able anymore to produce? So the big majority of them, they quit the fields and went to the to the big uh, African towns uh, in, the, in the Western Africa. But there is a, a minority, minority, but not so small, that made put in place a different um, migration project. They actually crossed the desert and the sea, and they came to Europe. And what happened to them <laughs> and the part of them, they ended up picking up tomato in the Italian fields in southern Italy which is totally crazy. So the the former tomato producer in Ghana, they they ended up harvesting tomato in Italy and uh, in a way uh, feeding this paradoxical system that is putting their fellows out of the market.
0: Even though food has always traveled, this system is not working.
1: Food has always crossed the oceans, you know the big bulk of the mediterranean uh regime is based on products coming coming from outside the, the 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 very tomato comes from from central america it was imported by by the Spaniards and by Christopher colombo in uh, in the 16th century uh to europe and then it became the, like national pride in italy what ha- what is happening now and what has happened for for now 30 years as the food is Travelling in a crazy way, without a logical sense.
0: Some pause for thought the next time you pick up a tube of tomato paste in the supermarket.
1: I think we need to give um, transparency to the supply chain. When we buy food, we don't have information. We should put more information on the food we buy in the retail retail sector. I need to know how this food has been produced and in which way. This is what I intend as to the, the fight against the anonymous food. When I buy, uh, for example, tomato paste in Italy, I don't know where the tomato comes from. I don't know whether the tomato has been picked by uh, illegal migrants. I don't know whether uh, a, a big amount of fertilizers, agrochemicals has been used for this production. I don't know anything. I just know the price. So, uh, if I add this information, I would be able to pay a higher price for a production that has been that, that has been more uh, environmental friendly, more ethical in related to the war. I can play an active role in the f- supply chain.
0: Stefano thinks the solution to this problem is
1: political. I do believe that the big the big transformation have to be carried out by uh, political players. Uh, As I said before, you have to regulate the food system. You have to prevent the financial actors from interfering into the food system. You have to regulate the free trade agreements on on a more equal basis. So giving uh, the low-income countries the possibility to build up their food producing network. You have to empower the small-scale farmers all across the world. Uh, In Europe, we have the common uh, agriculture policy to protect our farmers, to give uh, our farmers the the subsidies they need to produce food. And even though it is controversial, but all across the world we don't have to abandon the farmers because farmers are very important for the future of the of the food security but i would say for the food the future of our environment and our planet but we as
0: individuals share some responsibility as well
1: there are two levels of course each of us can give can make the difference by making private choice but the big difference has to be made by the politics, because only politics can really change the, the system. Of course, politics acts on the pressure of the civil society, of private private people. So, so we as citizens, we have to put pressure on politicians to make this uh, fight against the anonymous food uh, a priority and to establish uh, an environmental where food production is not standardized anymore is not too much globalized as it is now and food is not so anonymous as it is right now
0: the star ingredient is an original euronews podcast series where we've been traveling across africa and europe to meet chefs reviving forgotten local flavors we like to think of it as a cooking show with a side dish of food for thought. I'm your host, Takumbo Salako, and this series is written and produced by my colleagues Ashling Nikulan, Naira Devlasian, and Marta Rodriguez-Martinez. Our consulting editor is Catalina Moy in Santiago de Chile, and our solutions journalism mentor is Michel Foin in Paris. The theme music is by Andy Rabini. Our production coordinator is Louise Lehec. Our editor-in-chief is Patrick Heary, and sound mixing for this episode is by Hugo Puglia. To learn more about Stefano Liberti's work, follow him on Twitter at AbuTiago. You can also listen to The Star Ingredient on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating, comment, and tell your friends. If you want our team to read your comments on social media, then use the hashtag The Star Ingredient. The podcast The Star Ingredient was funded by the European Journalism Center through the Solutions Journalism Accelerator. This fund is supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.
1: Hold up.